Welcome to another episode of Wish I Knew, a podcast where I speak with people about their career success, advice given and received, and listen to their interesting stories about how they got to where they are today. I'm your host, Gary Nowak, and today I've got a super enjoyable one for you, Susie DiStefano. Her personality just lit up this podcast, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Some of her career highlights, Senior Vice President and Chief Executive Officer of Children's Memorial Herman Hospital in Texas, the Pediatric Heart Institute was founded under Susie's leadership. She was a Senior VP of Patient Care Services and Chief Nursing Officer at Texas Children's Hospital. She's also on the board of Depelchin Children's Services and is a board member of Children's Hospital Association and the March of Dimes Houston Chapter. What I learned is Susie's DNA. She's very committed to improving health for children and women, addressing the physical, psychological, and emotional needs of these special populations. Some great highlights from our discussion. She indicated her first job that command and control didn't work, a lesson that she learned at age 12. You're going to hear that very early on in the podcast. And I love this, moving from being right to getting it right. Great quote. She was a life flight nurse in her 20s. She set up COVID command centers recently. Great advice early on about intimidation, having the confidence to turn down a promotion, which turned out to be a very good decision in her career. Susie's definition of privileged, it's a bit different from everybody else's, so I thought it was very impactful. Being a social pariah, and finally, a kale salad is part of her favorite meal. Anyway, let me get out of your way, sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Susie DiStefano. Susie, great to see you. Thank you very much for joining me on my podcast. Great to be with you, Gary. So I always like to start off with, what was your very first job? Yes. Well, I have an illustrious career in leadership that started with my first job as babysitting my siblings. I'm from a large family. I was the um, the most likely to be the babysitter. So I started out being very dictatorial and pretty much everybody hated me when they talked to me uh, by the time my parents got home. Did that a couple of times, realized the autocratic leadership style was not going to be something that anyone liked. And actually, I didn't even like myself. So I changed it a little bit, modified it, got into more participative decision making. And I was launched uh, by age 12, understanding that, yeah, pay attention to the stakeholders. Did you pull that lesson throughout your whole career? I think it was a hard-earned lesson and uh, probably didn't do it perfectly, but it was a very subtle reminder of you uh, are treated the way you treat others. And wow, my siblings were brutal back to me. So great that I learned that one early. How's the relationship now? Great. You know, I'm one of six. We are in, uh, technology helps a lot. We're in a lot of dialogue ongoingly and across the six of us we have 11 kids who are close cousins in age and connectedness so hey let's hear it for candor and uh, uh honest feedback yeah you do have a certain way about you you just have a, a a nice way it must be coming from a big family and being the oldest and working around everybody so it seems like you're very comfortable in your own skin it seems like you're very comfortable in your own skin you know, I'm from the Midwest, and we were taught, you know, first of all, everybody's tall and there's brown hair, so that's a starting point. And then, you know, there's this this sort of, I don't know, ethos around working hard and not getting 
quote, too big for your britches, end quote. <laughs> and so, you know, today's terms, we'd say you don't lead with your ego. But when I was growing up, it's just like, do what you know you're capable of doing, end of story. And that's good. So, so I'm, I have brown hair, but I'm not tall. So I'm a, I'm a short brown haired person. So I may not have fit in to strike. Hey, if you don't mind, would you just mind providing a snapshot of your career for, for the audience? Sure. I started out as a photojournalism major and I was really drawn to human interest stories. So, you know, I find myself in the uh, projects taking photographs, oftentimes of really young moms and just things I hadn't been exposed to. From that, I kind of did this massive pivot is what we call it today into science and uh, began majoring in nursing. From there, I graduated University of Texas, Austin undergrad and took a job, got hook and horns and took a job uh, working in a migrant community because I thought it would be very cool to experience being a minority. And so I did that. I was the only Caucasian in the program. My Spanish was kind of halting. I made it through that. And then the rest of my career has really been a series of surrounding myself with children's health issues, oftentimes in a hospital where I uh, was a life flight nurse, where I, you know, flew on helicopters, picked up sick kids, mostly babies. I ran a neonatal ICU, uh, with, given the opportunity to start home care program for pediatric patients, but at the time that was sort of a newish thing to do. Worked in a chronic care environment for kids uh, for a short amount of time. That really wasn't my jam. And then I, I was offered an opportunity as an executive, a senior executive role that was really sort of above my experience level. Decided to take it. Did that for quite a long time and then consulted for a short amount of time and then pivoted into my last role, which was 10 years running a children's hospital in a large system. A vast amount of experience starting off from photography, knowing that you liked it. So there's, there's that thread of working with children. It sounds like when you reflect back on your career, what are you most proud of? Mm, what am I most proud of? Um, that I didn't go to law school. <laughs> I was, uh, trying to decide what would be the next cool thing to do. And I was kind of on the cusp of going back to school, getting another degree or working a degree I had. And I had a master's degree in nursing and kind of just pushing it to see how many different things I can do. I chose the latter path and I, I'm, I'm proud that I stuck to the kind of the core of who I was. The reason we know each other, we're both going through the same training program. We're both meant to be coaches at some point in time. Fingers crossed if all goes well, right? That's the plan. Yeah. So what brought you into coaching? So coaching has always been intriguing to me. And I have to say, I wasn't really um, able to discern the difference between mentoring, coaching, and consulting until I joined the Hudson program. So now it's quite a bit clearer in my mind. I think for anybody in a leadership position, if you really enjoy building teams, building others' careers, uh, seeing them do well, there, there's that combination, I think, of, of mentoring and coaching. And so I've been... I became really intrigued with not knowing the answer, but rather knowing the question to ask. Yeah, I've been finding, I've been latching onto the word curiosity mm. quite a bit recently. The more I research coaching, the more I'm realizing executives, especially someone at your level, is really learning the skill of coaching to bring out the best in their team. Now, when you reflect back on your career and learning what you're learning, do you kind of feel that would have been very helpful for the leaders uh, that may be listening? Yeah, I just sighed because yes, yes, and yes. I I can't tell you how invaluable. I think I knew it at the time, 
And now that I have a little more time to think through the value of how you we spend our time and energy, I would say cut the flurry of activity down and replace it with some thoughtfulness. And that energy will drive your business outcomes several fold. So when you say cut the flurry of activity down, and in my world, so I came from a consulting world, I know exactly what that means. In your world, what does that mean for you? A lot of times it's uh, solving the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, or working at a pace that is really a highly, you know, it's that addictive, high adrenaline pace. And yet some of the work is non-value added and there's a price to be paid for working that way for everyone. So I think, you know, it's that combination of how do you get the energy up and go for it when you have to set up the COVID command center that day? And we did that. Or how do you sustain kind of a, uh, a process or something that really does need attention like yourself so that you can go the, go the distance? I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it's the value add. That's what I pulled out of that because all too often when I reflect back on my career, I participated in things that were very comfortable because I knew how to do it. But I don't know that I was value add or somebody else could have done it just as easily as I could have done it or did it. So just reflecting back on 2020 and COVID, what did you learn about yourself? So I happened to be um, part of a crew that was setting up a command center in a large tertiary hospital when COVID hit. And I think what I learned was that it wasn't enough to manage what was happening. We had to have a separate team anticipating what was the next thing that that was likely to go wrong because it did. Really being able to do rapid fire changes and just keep going. I have so much respect for the people that are still in the just keep going phase because there is a fatigue that is really demonstrable at this point, which kind of leads me full circle to how do we make space for a little bit of rejuvenation time so these guys can get back in and do the good work? Because you can't just fire fight indefinitely. And I think that is what many organizations have lived through this last year. And we need to pull out of it, start doing some things differently, and keep the old stuff that was working. Are you still staying in contact with people that you worked with? And how are they holding up? I think that's probably the point you were making. Yeah, I am uh, staying in contact with several of them. And they are proud of their work. They are proud of their teams. And if they say too much more than that, they get tearful. They just, the emotions well up because there's so much that has been just tamped down in order to stay functional for the last year. I spoke with a physician two nights ago, and she's just an amazing person. Uh, I have so much respect for her, and she was getting ready to take her first day off in a year. I was like, oh, good God. You mentioned rejuvenation. Have you talked to anybody and any recommendation or advice on how people would be able to rejuvenate? I think there are all kinds of, um, all, all kinds of techniques. One thing that I'm really intrigued by are how do people that are in really super busy uh, roles, particularly clinicians, how do they quickly rejuvenate and turn around and go right back in, into that intensive care unit? So those simple exercises that take 12 seconds or less around deep breathing, around an image that kind of transports you to somewhere that's a happy place. And my favorite one is the rubber band one where you imagine rubber bands running across your forehead all the way down your body. 
And then you just mentally release the top rubber band and the next one and the next one. And it takes about 12 or 15 seconds and you actually feel better. These guys don't have a lot of time. Are these physical rubber bands you're putting on or are these? <laughs> it is that uh, theoretical, uh, rhetorical, virtual rubber band. <laughs> the metaphorical rubber bands that are there you go. just constricting your body. I like it. And you can feel it in your shoulders most of the time anyway, so, you know, at least I can. What I tell people that I work with is a lot of time between meetings, but I'm a big visualization person. If you want something to go, even if it's 30 seconds before a meeting, a minute before a meeting, just sit, breathe, close your eyes or don't close your eyes, but visualize how you want something to go. I think that's pretty powerful for people to yeah. do, especially the breathing part. So I, I, I appreciated that. It doesn't cost money is what I love. You don't have to get... Uh, clearance by legal to get a consultant. I mean, it's not all the blah, blah, blah. It's just simple, organic. Do it. In reflecting back on your career, what did you like the most about it? Hmm, I liked the newness and the challenges. And I'm a big believer of, of doing things that are slightly terrifying to you. Uh, but yet are, you know, deep down they're attainable. Just don't know how you're going to do it. But you know that you likely have the capacity to do it. So I would say every time I put myself into one of those positions, I was concerned, great, could I really make it happen? And you ultimately do because you want to and because you have the desire and because it's worthwhile to you. And I've always been careful to take jobs that were really meaningful to me in my core. And that for me has been essential. And I'm not saying that is what everyone needs to do, but for my work, it has just been the essential um, catalyst and ingredient. When you describe your career, there's just that common thread that just runs through you. I mean, first of all, to go into nursing, you know, that's a very noble and tremendously powerful field. And you did that very early on. Although photography is noble and powerful, I do think nursing takes on a bit of a different tone. Getting into your um, wantingness for challenges, do you take that outside of work? And do you jump out of planes? Do you do crazy things like that? Not so much. No, I'm thinking about that. And I always wanted to skydive. And then I got to a certain age where I'm like, eh, let's just park that one. Maybe I'll do it if I get to 90. Maybe I'll do it then just for the hell of it. You know, no, I think I'm I'm um, sort of a thoughtful, um, introspective person in many regards. I love to read. I like to cook. I like to hang out with my family, all the usual stuff, normal human stuff. Um, nothing that's too, you know, nothing too standard deviations outside the norm. I like the analytical mind there. Let's kind of switch to advice. And I'll let you take this where you want to go with it is what what's the best advice you've ever gotten? Someone after I took this big job that I, I was intimidated by, frankly, and we had a big situation occur that was very complex for any exec, most plus a new one. And the CFO at the time came, and this is when I was a senior VP over operations at a hospital and the chief nursing officer. And the CFO came down the hall, looked both ways, shut the door, and stuck her head in my office and said, hey, look, don't let this job intimidate you because it will be outcome. And I went, hmm, that sounds like wise advice. So that always stuck in my mind as really solid advice. Don't leave with your ego, no bravado, but don't be intimidated by it because that means you let it, you let it get in your head. Is that advice you give to other people or do you have different advice that you provide to people? No, I think that's pretty good advice. The, the other advice that I've had to learn 
is really the art of asking questions, of moving from being right to getting it right. And I talk about that a lot because um, I think that most of us were educated in the be right kind of framework, and you're supposed to be right as a student. But getting it right means that you typically have taken other people's input. It's a much more complex process. And so I've really had to learn that. And I think that the earlier you learn that in your career, the better off. You've mentioned ego several times, and it takes humility because we all want to be right. I love that statement. It's ready to, better not to be right, but to get it right, especially in your field. Yeah, and I've had to learn that. I mean, I know I've led with ego at times. I know I've done all of that. But um, I hope at the same time I've done more of trying to get it right. Has there been any advice that you've received that was just horrible advice? Yeah, I think of one time I was offered a fairly big promotion and it was fairly early in my career. I was told by almost everyone, take that job. You need to take that. If you don't take that, you're not going to, you're going to show that you're not interested and blah, blah, blah. And in my heart of hearts, I just didn't think I was ready. Even though a minute ago I said, take jobs that are slightly terrifying. This one was I just didn't think I had the substrate, the grounding, and the knowledge that would really make me an effective leader. So I turned it down and stayed in the same organization and, and kind of got a little backwash for it. But I'll tell you what, it was the best thing, uh, best advice I never took. Um, from that position, I was recruited in, right into an executive role. So it's interesting. I didn't take the immediate candy because I just didn't think it was right for me at that time in my career. And then sure enough, something great came along two years later. Have you found in your career you typically follow your gut instinct? Because that seems like what happened there. Yeah, I think we don't talk a lot about intuition. You know, just like we don't know how to measure EQ, we don't know how to measure intuition. And yet, I think if all of us think about advice that we all get and give, the advice that you take is oftentimes what's in your gut and it's usually the right thing i mean i i think it is anyway i'm i rely on myself i like to listen to everyone's input but at the end of the day i'm gonna live with it what is your perspective on mentoring did you have a lot of mentoring when you were growing up going through your career i know a lot of brothers and sisters have probably provided mentoring if you will (laughs) they provided me feedback uh no i'm just teasing you know, I had I had several mentors that were important in terms of how I saw myself evolving and growing and a couple of people that took chances on me. In fact, the first, I don't think I'd call her a mentor, but the first time that I flew on a uh, helicopter as a transport nurse, I really was interested in it, but was a little intimidated by it. And they said, just go, go right now. And I said, okay. She wasn't mentoring me, but she could read that I had the capability. I just didn't have the confidence. And so out the door I went, and it was fine. So less thinking, more doing, just get out there and go. I think that's it sometimes. Just, you know, put yourself out there. It's sort of amazing what happens when you move out of your comfort zone. Good stuff happens. Let's talk about you jumping into helicopters to go. How how long was that? Was it a difficult decision to make that choice. That seems very daunting. When I say you don't want to skydive, you're, you're jumping into helicopters. That's pretty impressive. Well that, uh, <laughs> well, that was kind of easy. There was a doctor on board, a pilot on board, um, a lot of resuscitation equipment, and nah, it was fun. And I was in my early 20s, so that made it easier too. We have less fear when we're younger as we get older. 
So want to uh, switch tacks a bit with any setbacks in your career or disappointments. Failures is often a tough word for a lot of people to, to stomach, but anything that impacted your career that at the time was very traumatic, yet it turned out to be a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one for me is just a headliner. And after 20 years as a senior VP, I was terminated from an organization. And, you know, it was uh, one of those things where they said we're going in a different direction. And when I called my father afterwards to explain um, that they were going in a different direction, his response was, what, down? (laughs) So parents are always there for you is all I can say. Yeah, I mean, that was something I really had to process. Um, It was a big blow to my ego and my self-esteem. And yet, you know, it's weird, but I am grateful for it now because I grew internally and externally, ended up doing some very cool projects as a consultant for a short amount of time, and then moved into my most recent leadership role. So all good, all good. Good people always end up on their feet anyway. It's true. And a friend of mine described it as this. If you're not stand, if you don't stand for anything as an executive, if you don't put yourself out there at times, and that doesn't mean every time you're that person waving the flag. So that's annoying. But if you don't stand up for something, at, at some point, you either, you stand for nothing or you are likely to be a casualty, much like an, a professional athlete. And it doesn't mean they're good, they're bad. They just get traded. So what? Just expect it. It's part of the game. And uh, that really helped me kind of qualify it and understand it as just business, nothing personal. Did you lead me into a sports analogy on purpose, Susie? Because you know how much I love it? I don't know much about sports per se. I do love tennis, um, but I'm really not a sports person. But hit me with it. Let's Let's see. <laughs> well, it's almost every single great quarterback in history never ends up with the team that they started with. Tom Brady being the most recent, he's the greatest of all time, and now he's playing for Tampa Bay. When you look at Joe Montana, he left. Brett Favre, there's a couple that stayed with their teams. You look at uh, Peyton Manning, he moved from Indianapolis to Denver. So a lot of times you have to look at it, it is just business. Things happen and you need to move on. Getting into your priorities, because we talked about your time in the in, in your 20s, jumping into helicopters and saving lives and doing fun stuff. Have your priorities or has your perspective changed over time throughout your life or career? I think priorities change as your life, your phases of life change. You know, I'm thinking about prior to having kids, certainly spent my time differently as parent of two kids and a husband with a really busy job. Yeah, I think, I think so. And I, you know, typically as with most people, I think the older I get, the more I prioritize, um, family and some really good friends, but I've moved from quantity to quality. <laughs> That's great. I always like, I guess reflecting on my life, I've never had a lot of friends, if you will, and I've traveled quite a bit, but I've always enjoyed being with the right people. And I just assume spend time by myself and be with people that really don't hit the mark for me or we're really not on the same page. So I'm very comfortable in my own skin, which it feels like you are as well. You know who you are. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you on that one. I'll take a great book over mediocre company all day long. And maybe a glass of wine tossed in there somewhere. That's always a good idea. It's kind of a eclectic question. If, if you're in a room with 100 people, where would you stand in the top 10% of that group? What do you do better than almost 90% of the other people? You know, that's a tough one. I don't know. To quantify, that's tough. I'll tell you what I do. I do well, and that's adapt. I adapt. 
because I think that is interesting and there's a lot of learning and it can be fun and it may go back to being one of six kids, <laughs> adapt or die. You know, it just, you just, I don't know. I think it's ingrained into me. I enjoy it. That's a great trait and great skill set. When you look back at your career, your success, what do you attribute that success to? Hmm. You know, I um, I work with some community organizations that are all about children's health. And I have, I've said several times that I grew up in a privileged environment. And then I wait for everybody to give me the eye roll. And then I explain, I don't mean economically privileged. I mean emotionally privileged. So starting off life with parents and a family who are strong and intact and love you and tuck you in at night. It sounds so trivial, but I am seeing just a dearth of, you know, what happens when you don't have any of that. So, you know, those of us that were privileged enough to start off with um, solid families, then think our core values kind of click in and provide a North Star that is more easily found than those that have to search for it a little bit more. So I think I was advantaged by having an intact family, a family that believed a lot in education, one that was sort of a quarterback of all of us, just kind of go get him. And then hard work, There's you really do have to want to work hard, persistence, a little luck, and a sense of humor, and bingo. Easy as. Well... (laughs) Those are the essential ingredients, and I do like to cook. So if I just reflect on that, what you said earlier about you really wanted to go into a community where, and you said, I was the minority. There was nobody like you. So what what was the rationale for that, or why did you feel like you that was good for you? Well, at the time, again, I was in environments where it was we were almost all Caucasians, and I had one friend who was African-American, and, you know, he was a cool guy. But I really... And my high school is fairly integrated. So that, now that I think about it, and so I had friends of different colors, and yet I knew that I was always the majority. And so, I don't know, it just seemed like an important experiment to try it on. And what I learned was that I didn't learn, you can't pick up a culture overnight. The people were wonderful. They were hardworking. They were earnest. They did not invite me to any of their social things. And I was working out of a school. And on Monday morning, a couple of them would say, you know, we're really sorry we didn't invite you because we kind of wanted to, but we just don't include people like you. I was like, oh, you don't? So, I mean, I I was the social pariah. Uh, But people kind of didn't like doing that, but that was just sort of their norm. So I got to experience that. It was kind of not that fun, but I really did sign up for it on purpose. That's interesting. People afterwards tell you they wanted you there, but ah, we just don't do that. <laughs> we just don't do that. They just didn't know how fun you were. So you, you didn't let your personality show during working hours. So it's <laughs> like, oh, we got to have Susie there. She's the best ever. Well, I don't know that I'm ever the person you invite to be at the center of the party, but you know, I would have been more fun than just not having me. But you know, anyway, that was a good lesson for me. It's just sort of like, wow, people are excluded and there's really no reason for it. It's just sort of, it's just more or less, that's how we do it. Yeah. And I, I kind of reflect on my time. Part of the reason I wanted to go to China to work was, you know, you stand out. You go into, you know, nine places out of 10, it's, there's no hiding the fact. And I, I embraced it. I enjoyed it. And I found it very, most of the people were very warm. And, you know, I learned a lot about Chinese food because 
if you get proper Chinese food, do you know the Lazy Susan? I do. In order to have proper Chinese food, you need a lot of people. You just can't go to dinner with two people or one person being by myself and have Chinese food because the idea is you get a lot of it. What I like about it, and the reason they have chopsticks, because everything they cook, it's kind of already cut for you. So you don't need a knife and a fork. And with the lazy, you just push things around until you get that dish back to you that you just love. And you take a little bit and then you let it go. And then you take a little bit and you let it go. And it just keeps moving around. But it's, it's such a, a culture of being together and being surrounded by food in that community. So when I was invited, I usually had to pick up the tab, but that, that's fine. But I also got to enjoy really, really good food. And the vegetables, I thought, were, I think I would lead with vegetables. And the other thing they do is they cook dishes and they bring them out in any order. It doesn't matter, you know, whether it's a meat dish or tofu or vegetable. They just keep throwing it on a lazy Susan and wedge their way in. But, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, it was a good time. And, you know, to go to your point, yeah, to go to your point about culture, it's just, it is very difficult to learn a culture quickly. It's, it's a great ability. It's a great perspective to go and, and embrace yourself. Uh, embrace isn't the right word. It's a, it's a good way to go to immerse yourself into a place so you can kind of see how they work. And like you, I kind of view myself as a chameleon. I try to fit in. In consulting, you had to do that a lot. You had to go into a client. You couldn't have a very dominant personality uh, unless that was your style, whereas my style was just more or less trying to fit in with what, what was going on and, and the culture around. So, so yeah. Have you ever lived outside of Texas? Um, I grew up in the Midwest, um, in Kansas City, and I lived in Colorado for a while and then Texas, but no. And I, I'm very aware of, oh no, the regional differences. My husband's from New York, so we're back and forth on the East Coast a bit. Not this last year, of course, but, I'm very intrigued by all of that. Do you have a perspective on barbecue? <laughs> well, no, not really, other than um, every barbecue is different, right? Kansas City has is known for its barbecue, and then Texas has its own version. I think it's all good, but I really don't um, imbibe in a lot of it, to be honest with you. You mentioned cooking a couple times. What is your favorite thing to cook? Mm, I love to make risotto. And, you know, you open a bottle of wine and you can put a lot of stuff in risotto or nothing. And it's just that cozy, you know, it's that cozy warm meal and you serve it with some grilled vegetables and maybe a kale salad and you're good to go. Kale salad. Yeah, that that hits the spot. No, I was going to say, let me know next time you're in town. I'll have you over for dinner. I'll make you some risotto. I would love that. I do like the idea of cooking. I'm not a good cook, but I just enjoy the process and I enjoy the music and the wine, and the timing. So let me ask you this. Are you a person, when you cook, do you clean as you go? Or when you're done cooking, there's just a pile of dishes in the sink that need to get cleaned? I'm a clean-as-I-go girl. I'm like you with the aesthetic. I like to look around and go, oh, I like what I see, and I like what I smell, and yes. It's for the eyes. I like what I see. I like what I hear in the music. I like what I smell. I like what I'm drinking. Yeah, it's a whole process. So, and it, and it can be time consuming. Okay. So some fun rapid fire questions. Favorite movie or book? Oh gosh, there's so many. I just read this book um, the other week. It's just charming. It's called the Thursday Murder Club and it's about a bunch of people that live in a senior living home and they solve mysteries. 
it, it was just charming. A light read. If I were to pick something more serious, oh my gosh, I would say, I just read this book. It's been around forever called I Know This Much Is True. Well, it was, was a heavy lift, but a good book. Favorite vacation spot? Oh, Italy, Italy, and Italy. Isle of Capri, Cinque Terre, Portofino, you know, Rome, Florence, all the Tuscany, Liberia. Yeah, the whole thing. So I'm not Sherlock Holmes, but I'm drawing a thread with risotto to Italy. Yeah. Is there a connection there? Yeah, just probably my husband and his family, big Italian, Sicilian rather. Isn't it a great place? It's probably one of my favorite countries to visit. Favorite musical artist? I love Bocelli. Italian theme is coming out. Um, but I also like, oh my gosh, love the stones, love... Well, let's stick with the Italian theme. What's your favorite type of pizza? <laughs> okay, arugula and prosciutto. And the crust is... Crisp. Crisp. Thin, nice thin, and thin. Crisp. A little burnt-ish. Okay, a couple last ones. Do you have a Netflix gem that nobody would know about that you found that you just love? Wow. I think most people know about this one, and, and this is... I don't know. It's really a PBS, but it was called Call the Midwife. And it's kind of interesting. It takes place in East London. And it's just all about the social, political stuff in addition to children being born. And that one to me is pretty fascinating. Um, the other stuff, I think I'm fairly pedestrian. I, I watch what I see. I did see one that I thought was interesting called The Chalet. And it takes place in France. And I don't know that it's, it, it might be a gem. It's a gem for you. That's good enough for me. So last question. If I gave you $1,000, you had to spend it, you couldn't invest it, what would you do with it? Buy some kid a computer. Buy some kid a computer. <laughs> so <Yeah>. donate it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd get some kid walking tall because he's got some technical, you know, jam that, that he didn't have last week and he's feeling better about himself. Okay, a follow-up on this. If I gave you $100 and you had to spend it, what would you spend it on? If you gave me $100, what would I spend it on? Mm, probably something similar, you know? I'd probably go to Starbucks or somewhere and buy the five people behind me something fun and leave a big tip. Susie, you're a good person. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you know, normal. Well, I can tell you, most people I ask that question haven't been giving it away to others. So at least in that regard, you are much more philanthropic than a lot of the people that I've been speaking with. Okay, one, sorry, one last question. If you could have dinner, a risotto dinner that you cook, who would you invite mm -hmm. over, person dead or alive? Mm -hmm. Jane Goodall, the woman that does all the chimp research, uh, you know, um, in Africa. <sighs> I just think she rocks it. And she's still prior to COVID, was traveling and lecturing, which just blows my mind. She's so impressive. It just shows you if you really love and it's deep in your core what you do, you will, it's, she's never worked a day in her life if you asked her. Yeah. And she's, you know, in her 80s, she's vibrant. She's excited about her work. And I just go, wow, because she, her profile as a young person was kind of the least likely to go into that kind of work you know she would have more likely gone to a real traditional path a good school which i believe she did blah 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 but not not researching you know her whole life these primates so i i think she's pretty cool and you know i just looked up online you know what her favorite meal is no risotto it's unbelievable you're lying <laughs> 
I can tell by that Gary smile you're lying. <laughs> I'm trying to be funny. Uh, it's not. It's not easy. But somebody's got to give it a shot every once in a while. Being silly. Susie, can't thank you enough for being on. I really, really appreciate your time. Oh my gosh, it's always good to connect with you, Gary. Uh, so fun. You have, you've asked me things I haven't thought about for a while, so that was fun too. Great. Well, we'll speak in a few hours, I think, right? Yeah. I'll see you at the Manta Ray meeting.